you know, everybody's yelling at each other over, you know, their identity. Mm. While the rich get richer, um, bread and circuses, right? Mm. You know, we're being manipulated by high up people, making us mad, Elon Musk, mm. making us all crazy in the hope that we'll, you know, stay longer on the site so he'll make more money. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all being manipulated. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Well, I was going to start by saying... For anyone who doesn't know who you are, so many strings to your bow. I mean, people ask me sometimes, what do you do? And it's very hard to like kind of summarise it. And mm. obviously you do podcasts, you write, well, your main thing is writing, but screenwriting as well and podcasts and journalists could argue as well. But I mean, yeah. how do you define yourself? I, I, I think I, I call myself a non-fiction writer. Journalist kind of gives the wrong impression. It does, yeah. <laughs> sort of, um, mm. you know, gumshoed trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I guess I kind of am but, um, <laughs> but I prefer non-fiction I, I like non-fiction writer yeah. I don't really think of screenwriting like I've written a co- I've been incredibly lucky to have written a couple of screenplays that got made mm. but on each of those occasions I was collaborating with a proper screenwriter mm. Peter Strawn on Frank and Bong Joon-ho on Oakja and so I don't see myself as a screenwriter I see myself as somebody who Luckily, hooked up with yeah. two great you dabbled, screenwriters. You dabbled, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but the other stuff, basically, it's writing, writing nonfiction, adventure stories, kind of, and doing the same thing in audio with with podcasts. But not this kind of podcast, not a conversation. Mm, yeah. Something much more, you know, edited and structured, and yeah. Mm, you're but, a storyteller. Yeah, storyteller. I am. I'm a storyteller. It's funny. In the old days, storyteller had such a terrible connotation. Mm. It was like some kind of I don't know, I'm about to be really pejorative, but some kind of Norfolk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> weaving tails. Yeah, yeah weaving tails. <laughs> and Around the fireside. Drinking yeah. Uh, yeah. liquid, yeah. Op- op- opium or whatever. And, yeah. yeah, telling stories about the ancient times. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like modern Middle Earth type thing, situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now, I, I, yeah, I, I, I am, I'm a storyteller. Yeah, I'm and glad I, that that word has, has doesn't have those connotations anymore. Mm. No. I think it's quite a trendy word at the moment. I see lots of people mm. saying that they're storytellers, creators. Yeah. I think it's so. Well, even on social media, we're, we're having we're creating content. You're having to tell a story all the time, right? Um, well, well, I mean that's very true. But with me, I literally can only tell stories. Like I can't sit at home. Sometimes, well, actually, I don't. But you know, there's some writers who are very good at sitting at home and having big thoughts and writing books without leaving their homes at all. I mean, that's what novelists do. Mm. But I just can't do that. I The only way I can write is to go off and have, you know, get out of my depth, have adventures, go on strange journeys, meet people. Uh, I can't do it any other way, really. Mm. It's that kind of gonzo style, I guess, do you think? Yeah, I th- yeah, I think so. Um, I'm always a little resistant to the word gonzo because for me, gonzo means something very specific. It's mm. basically Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> it's hedonistic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> taking a load of LSD <laughs> and then infiltrating <laughs> yeah. a police convention. Yeah. Uh, and I don't do that. No. But, but I, you know, there is there are, I think, gonzo elements to what mm. I do. It's a less... It's a, uh, you know, what I... 
Around the same time that Huntress Thompson started, Tom Wolfe wrote this book called The New Journalism, and it was a collection of first-person non-fiction narrative people. I think probably Huntress Thompson was in there, but so was uh, people like Joe Esterhouse and George Plimpton. This is completely from memory, mm. and I might have got it completely mm. wrong. But basically, that feels more like what I do. You know, it's definitely first-person. You know, it's my journey. Mm. It's filtered through my experience. Um, but there's many ways of doing that, you know, mm. not just the kind of Hunter Thompson thing. There's many different tones and styles to it. Mm. Well, I think that's what makes your stuff so not just readable, but relatable as well, because you're going on that journey with you. Mm. And it, it's a very sort of empathetic story. You know, it's not just sort of like looking at things and people and situations under a microscope like you're a scientist. You're you're coming at it from a very human yeah, perspective. I think so. Whereas someone like Hunter Thompson was more of a sort of troublemaker. Mm. Like, like the comedy of his stuff is that he would cause chaos. And that, and I'm not saying I haven't ever caused chaos. <laughs> I have sometimes, but but it's not my foremost. Yeah. In a very polite way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very polite chaos maker. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I I suppose the most gonzo thing, one of the most gonzo things I did was when I first started my career, I snuck into this secret club called Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist. And we sort of, you know, snuck in through the bushes and witnessed this weird ceremony where world leaders have a mock human sacrifice. And that was very gonzo. Mm. Um, You could imagine Hunter S. Thompson doing that. Uh, So I have done mm. that kind of thing yes wow. can, can you just on Alex Jones can you believe where he's got to now I, I was I couldn't believe it like the first mm. time I was I lost touch with him for several years I moved on to other things mm. um and then I was at the gym this was probably 2015 I was on the elliptical and Trump was on just starting his uh campaign and I put on my headphones I mean at that moment everybody was so fascinated mm. by Trump yeah and I remember at that time I remember this happening but also it became a famous story that the networks Hillary Clinton was giving a speech but instead of carrying the speech the networks were showing the empty podium from which Trump would soon speak oh, like that's wow. how that's how obsessed people were with, with Trump and yeah, yeah when crazy. I I thought when I saw that I thought he's gonna win mm. and I tweeted it and everybody was like, don't be ridiculous, he's not even <laughs> yeah. going to get the nomination. And then, to my regret, I, you know, I, all of these experts were saying, don't worry, there's no way Trump's going to win. But I, so I sort of went back on my instinct, and I've always regretted that. Because mm. uh, nobody in 2016 thought Trump was going to win, and I did. Anyway, Alex, so I was at the gym, and Trump was on, and I put on my headphones and literally, as I put on my headphones, somebody shouted out a question to Trump, and it was, are you going to go back on the Alex Jones show? And Trump said, uh, Alex Jones, good guy. And I, I mm. almost fell off the elliptical. I thought, of all the people that I've interviewed, <laughs> oh, no. you know, if you'd said to me, like, which one of the people that you've chronicled over the years would you wish to have mm. the ear of the president, I wouldn't have said Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. But yeah. it is fascinating how a lot of these individuals David Icke as well someone that you've had dealings with have become mainstream it's um I mean it's it's 
it's bewildering. It's kind of upsetting. I've, I've just, I'm just finishing season two of Things Fell Apart. And at mm. the end, I give a little sort of emotional speech about the importance of truth. Like truth is the driftwood that we have to clutch onto right now or else we'll all drown. Mm. Um, the, you know, the sliding of, of, um, of standards when it comes to untruths and disinformation. And it really matters. You know, truth really matters. Mm. And and I find it kind of personally upsetting and bewildering that... And there's lots of different ways of lying, by the way. It's not just, you know, crazy conspiracy theories. Mm. There's ideological journalism on the left, mm. which is another way of lying. True crime podcasting is another way of yeah. lying. <laughs> you know, you take a little slither of information and you run with it. Mm. So there's lots, of, you know. So I'm not like blaming the right. Mm. Yeah. You see, you see untruths everywhere. Well, I think conspiracy theorists, actually, one of their things. You you might disagree, but it seems like one of their things is that they're the holders of the truth, and yes. they're so angry that no one else can see it. And it's like, open your eyes. This is so important. You know, they think that that is. The truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've just been reading Naomi Klein's book, Doppelganger, which mm. is very much in my wheelhouse. I try not to read mm. things that are too much in my wheelhouse because I can't relax. Yeah, yeah. So instead I've switched to Barbra Streisand's autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but before I stopped reading Naomi Klein, I, I, there was a line which stuck with me where she said, you know, when we deplatform people, um, they don't vanish. They, they go to another world, like a kind of mirror world, mm. where they're even more popular. Yeah. One of the most shocking things that came out of Alex Jones's um trial, he was sued by the parents of kids killed at Sandy Hook. Yeah, yeah. And one of the most extraordinary facts that came from this, so crazy I can barely believe it, is that after he was deplatformed, like shut out of YouTube everywhere, he made more money. Yeah. He became richer after being deplatformed. Mm. So when people say to me, you know, over the years, people have said to me quite a lot, you know, do you feel bad about platforming people like Alex Jones? I think a good answer I can give now is that, well, deplatforming doesn't work. Mm, no, it, in some ways, it's quite cult-like, isn't it? How they develop almost more power because then people are, well, the fact that they've been taken off social media and cancelled, so to speak, yeah. must mean they're telling the truth, you know, and people want to... St- Stop, stop stifle, them. Stifle yeah, the message. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, other people who also feel bruised by mainstream society then, you know, gravitate towards them. And, mm. and yeah, there's, it's, uh, it's, it's like the, what's that world in Stranger Things where everything's... Yeah. The Upside Down. The Upside yeah. Down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all living in the Upside Down world where they're... Mm. Naomi Wolf, apparently, according to Naomi Klein's book, you know, has more followers now. She's more successful since wow. you went to the other side. The Which other is, side, yeah. the dark side. Well, yeah, yeah. It, is. It, well, it does feel like that. <laughs> it does. And, and as I say, you know, I'll say again, like I do not point the finger at, at the right any more than I do. Mm. You know, I've I've been burned by overly ideological left-wing people who've wanted me to kind of influence my storytelling. Mm. And that's just as bad. Mm. You know, truth is truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going yeah. to say to you, like, how it's sometimes it feels hard to find the nuance in such, we live in such a binary world mm. now. 
and obviously that's something that you are always trying to seek out it feels like anyway i yeah i think so nuance because that's another lie you know the, the 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 twitter lie of everybody being either a magnificent hero or a sickening villain mm. and it's true that there's some people out there who are psychopaths and all they can do is spread mm. malevolence i'm sure there are some people out there who are magnificent heroes and all they do is heroic <laughs> things all the time but the fact is most people are neither one of those things mm. most yeah. people are a mess and <laughs> yeah so that's another truth is like don't you know don't turn people into this you know caricature mm. of the best thing about them or the worst thing about them yeah it's true we tend to idolize people and put them up on a platform on, and sort of like celebrate them like they're yeah like a god almost well, that, that's why it's even more juicy when we can take them down though isn't it? <laughs> right. yeah exactly well, yeah, exactly yeah. it leads to stuff like that mm. yeah and it leads to just everybody being used to i mean we're so conditioned to to now define ourselves as being in opposition to other people. Mm. And it means when something truly complicated like Israel Gaza comes mm. along, yeah. people can't see it in a complicated way. They, they're they on one side or they're on yeah. the other side. Yeah, yeah. And or if you, you know, you say something that's sort of like more on one side, everyone's like, well, that means you're anti this or, you know, you're completely right, yeah. against the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had people ask me to sign petitions from both sides, pro-Israel and pro-Gaza. Mm. And and I, I I haven't done it. And and that's the reason that like, the pro-Israel one leaves out a lot of stuff. Yeah. And the pro-Gaza yeah. one leaves out a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I just, you know, unless there's the, per and even then I wouldn't want to sign something, even if it was completely reflected how I feel, because what's the point? Like some platitude for me, like, how's mm. that going to, it's not going to change any, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> maybe it's, I don't know. Mm. I just, that's how I thought about it. So tackling the culture wars, which obviously is something you do and things fall apart. Uh -huh. um, things fell apart. So, sorry. It comes from the Yeats poem. Things fell apart. Yeah, the Yeats poem uh it's something about it. i almost i almost like cry when i recite this poem because no. it's such a powerful i can't remember the whole thing but it starts off with a falcon it was written in 1919 so during a pandemic mm. it was written during the spanish oh, oh, wow. yeah and um it, it and it's it begins with a falcon is lost in the air it can't find the falconer uh and then it says things fall apart the center cannot hold mere anarchy is loosed upon the world mm. the best this next line i'm always a little you know because it's a bit pejorative but the next line is the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity mm. and then the poem ends with the devil being born um and the last line is about the devil slouching towards Bethlehem to be born and the Joan Didion book slouching towards Bethlehem comes comes from that poem um so yeah wow. so when I was making things fell apart mm -hmm. I just remembered that poem and it seemed right yeah. but because it was my because season one of things fall, fell apart was a history story about origin stories from the past mm. i changed it from things fall apart to things, things fell, fell apart, apart. Yeah. that's probably too long an explanation no no it's a great no, one, it's no, a great no, one. No, so things fell apart yeah so diving into the culture wars which is obviously we, you know we've touched on already like there's uh, a, a fiery place to maybe dive into but yeah but obviously you're looking at it from a from an origin story kind of place, whereas a lot of people don't know a lot about how these things actually began yeah. and the stories are incredible i mean the best thing about the show 
um, is just how incredible the stories are, mm. you know, ferreting out these unknown stories. And we're just finishing season two now. And I think it's the same thing. There's just some incredible stories mm. in there that are going to blow people's minds, like something that began all the way over there ends here. Mm. Um, you would never think, you know, the path from one to the other. Yeah, stuff like, you know, someone who wants to start making a film and then suddenly there's a whole culture war over abortion. Yeah, <laughs> it's like all two because completely unrelated kid. things. Yeah, this yeah. kid wants to make Hollywood films, mm. manages to convince his father, who's a prominent Christian art historian, to let him direct a documentary for him because he wants a showreel. Anyway, for Hollywood producers and, and his images are so arresting he single-handedly convinces Christian evangelists to be against abortion. And then a bunch of people who watched the film, Frank's film, what if murdered abortion doctors? And Frank just wanted a showreel mm. yeah. <laughs> to show producers. Well, it sort of highlights the importance of understanding where your beliefs actually stem from. Because often you, you know, you attach a belief to something or people, I think, often are guilty of attaching a belief to something just because they hear it and they think, yeah, that sounds about right. But without actually doing really any research into where that came from, does it come from truth or does it come from some kind of weird? Yes, a weird person with a power complex or whatever. Yes. You know, and there's a line in season two of Things Fell Apart. It's kind of obvious in a way, but it, it kind of touched me where one of my interviewees says that America is a class-based society that pretends it's an identity-based society. Mm. And I think that's true. And I think, you know, what that really means is that, you know, everybody's yelling at each other over, you know, their identity mm. while the rich get richer um, bread and circuses, right? Mm. You know, we're being manipulated by higher people, making us mad, Elon Musk, mm. making us all crazy in the hope that we'll, you know, stay longer on the site so he'll make more money. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all being manipulated by... Uh, this is my conspiracy theory. <laughs> we're being manipulated by these uh, powerful tech, <laughs> you know, yeah, gurus yeah. and... And so on. And why? You know, given that America is a class-based society that pretends to be an identity-based society, why are so few people... Why is that an unpopular thing to say? I don't get it. Mm. Well, because it rocks people's identities. Well, especially Americans. I mean, it's easy mm. for us to say in England. But if you said that to an American, yeah, often people do attach their beliefs and their values to their identity. So if you try and shift that in any way, it's not just attacking their beliefs it's attacking them as a person right yes um, um it'd be interesting to see you know Ron DeSantis was going to be like the identity the culture war uh candidate and his um you know campaign for president is totally crashing and burning mm. and I would probably think that uh, abortion is still a big issue in America but I think stuff like you know the whole war between gender critical feminists and trans activists I don't think mm. that's going to factor at all into into the American election as much as people like Ron DeSantis want it to because mm. um, I think actually most people outside of the bubble of social media most people care about economics they care mm. about class yeah it's interesting mm. I think going back to what you're saying about Trump when you were saying you don't you, you thought that he was going to get elected but 
it feels like there is a, a, a difference between what people are seeing on social media and the, and the truth of it, because there's a whole demographic of people that aren't sharing their thoughts and feelings on social media. And yeah. we're in the echo chamber of people that are on Twitter being like, no, I don't think he'd be he'd be elected. That's ridiculous. But yeah. actually, there's lots of people out there with very different views. Lots of dissatis- dissatisfied people. Yeah, mm. totally. I, and I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen with Trump next mm. time around. I was pretty confident he'd win first time around. Second time around, I really don't know. Mm. I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not he's standing against Biden or someone else. Mm. I think if he's standing against Biden, he might win. Uh, simply not because I think Biden's doing a bad job. I don't. I think Biden's been doing, by and large, a, a good job. Mm. But Biden's just so old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, that's frightening people. Well, you know how I really love my morning coffees. I go down to Backers in the morning. I get my coffee to maintain my energies throughout the day. Well, I do love a coffee in the morning, but... Sometimes it doesn't quite hit the spot and too much caffeine, as you know, is not good. So I've discovered these magic mind shots. I've started to incorporate these into my daily routine. Uh, And the best thing is they taste amazing. And more importantly, they help me boost my productivity and my focus. Oh, yeah, I've heard about these. These contain something called nootropics, which is something that I actually recently heard all about. Uh, when we interviewed our nutritionist. They're supposed to be amazing for attention and concentration and cognition and really good for your mental health as well. So you end up getting more done and you're more productive in less time. Yeah, and do you know what's great also about these? So unlike heavy caffeine, I can take these magic minds even in the afternoon and I have no worries about getting off to sleep in the evening or tossing and turning. Mm, And have you been noticing any difference in the way you've been feeling in terms of stress and anxiety? Yeah, oh, it's so much better. They've got this thing in it called L-theanine and it naturally reduces your stress levels. Mm, funnily enough, I've heard about L-theanine because I had a friend that used to take it and it was supposed to be really, really good for anxiety and I've never found it anywhere in shops. I'm probably not looking hard enough, but I've but I've looked in sort of all the health food shops and I've never been able to find it. So actually, that's really cool that they have that in these shots as well. So if you're like me and you're trying to perform your best every day, you've got to give Magic Mind a try. Seriously, it is a total game changer. I am going to give Magic Mind a try. It sounds amazing. And guess what? The Magic Mind team have hooked us up with an incredible offer for our listeners. Yes, you can get up to one month for free when you're subscribing for three months. If you head over to magicmind.com forward slash Jan, J-A-N, talking, T-A-L-K-I-N-G-O-T-C. And you need to use the code unquestionable 20 it's an extra 20 percent off which gets you to a 75 percent off this only lasts until the end of january so hurry up before it goes away well it's frightening to think that when trump said many years ago that he could go out and shoot someone in mm. the street and he'd still get voted yeah he's <laughs> right. actually right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well, no one predicted that to be a thing yeah no <laughs> absolutely uh, absolutely yeah so to be curious i mean mm. i'm very curious to know what's going to happen is we're only a year away from the election mm. and i think the jury is massively out like anything could happen it's interesting you're saying about um like ronda santis and the sort of things that maybe some politicians are trying to stoke and we're seeing it here as well in the uk with the the, the former home secretary now mm. um stoking these 
culture wars, I guess, stoking these conversations. Do you think, by and large, though, most people are a little kind of weary of, you know, a bit maybe war weary of like kind of some of these things? Yes, I think so. I, I, I think we're, I mean, obviously, culture wars always mutate. Mm. And right now, Israel Gaza is, is, has become a culture war, yeah. you know, mm. bafflingly, to be honest. Um, so it's not like they go away, but I'd say that some of the ones that have burnt the hottest are now burning out. Um, the tra- you know the gender critical stuff I think yeah. is burning out. Mm. I think people are just sick of that. Um, so yeah, there is a weariness. Season two of Things Fell Apart is going to be my last, you know, foray into the culture mm. wars. Have you found it exhausting at all, or has it been quite interesting and you know? Well, no, I, I mean I love finding incredible stories. Mm. Um, it's funny. Most of my I said to somebody the other day. Most of my projects. Mm on the surface sound like something that people aren't going to want to read or listen to. The only the only exception to that is the psychopath test, because mm. it turns out that if you put the word psychopath in the title, people want to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, good tip, good tip. Yeah. Well, it's probably lots of people that want to know if they're a psychopath. <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. Um, I, didn't re- I didn't anticipate that, actually, because yeah. I am so sure that I am not a psychopath that I didn't anticipate that mm. the number of people over the last 15 years since that book came out um, or well, thirteen years, the fifteen years since I started writing mm. it, who've said that they were reading the book, thinking, "Oh my God, am I a psychopath?" Yeah. And then they always say that the part of the book, there's a line in the book where I say, mm. "You know, if you're worried, if you're reading this and worried that you might be a psychopath, that means you aren't one, yeah. because psychopaths never worry about being so said to worry yeah. about." It's like it's a great being a psychopath must feel fantastic. No, guilt. just don't care. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, must be lovely <laughs> yeah but um but yeah but the culture wars um is one of those topics where i think people kind of have to trust me mm-hmm. to want to listen to things fell apart because it's really good and season two is really good um but the subject matter may put people off yeah yeah, but, that, but that's been the way my entire career. Them, yeah. the Manisteric Goats, nobody wanted to read the Manisteric Goats. Like, who wants to read a book about the US military trying to train people to kill goats just by staring at them? <laughs> and then how that those ideas have mutated into the war on terror. Like, I wouldn't want to read that. <laughs> well, I, I love reading it, but, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like unfortunately, I, I gravitate towards stories that... I have to convince people are actually a lot more fun well, <laughs> than they seem on the surface. It's more gratifying, I think, those those jobs where you, it's, you know, on paper, it yeah. sounds weird. But actually, I think that's the definition of genius, isn't it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> one would hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, mm. no, it's true. It's like, so you've been publicly shamed as well. There oh, was so much so opposition. Mm. Yeah, but so much opposition. Really? Oh, yeah. Especially when I started writing that book. Mm. Nobody wants to read anything about the internet. The internet's boring. Mm. What people do on their computers doesn't impact the real world. This is what people were saying to me back in like 2012, wow. 2013, when I started work on that book. Mm. Um, but that's all the more reason to write it, surely, because if people genuinely think that, like, oh, the internet isn't affecting people's real lives. Yeah. Surely you when have you know to tell that the story. Is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, I, I, mm. I mean, I'm stubborn enough that that I don't listen to. You know, when I, <laughs> I when I first wrote my book, then I remember I met a producer at a party, 
And he said, uh, so what are you working on? I said, oh, well, all these conspiracy theorists believe that there's a secret room, like a shadowy cabal inside a secret room, and the shadowy cabal are secretly ruling the world. So what I'm doing in this book, I'm writing this book called Them, and I'm hooking up with the conspiracy theorists, and together we're going to, like, find the secret room, and we're going to climb up the drainpipes and get in and confront the secret rulers of the world going about their covert <laughs> wickedness. And he just looked at me and he said, really kind of disgusted. And he said, but, but it's not true. There isn't a secret room. And I, and I, I often thought about that because I thought if I'd listened to him yeah. and been put off, I wouldn't have written that book. And it's yeah, such a good, yeah. it's such, and it's, I'm so proud of that book. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to be stubborn. If you know that you're onto a story, if you have that instinct. I was going to say, do you, do you work a lot on your gut instinct and your intuition? You yeah, it's all, it's all I've got. Like mm. if something mm. is... If I find a story that I want to tell, I, I will tell it by hook or by crook. Mm. Um, because th- those th- it doesn't come along every day. Mm. You know, so I can go for a year without finding a story that I want to tell. Mm. So, you know, I've had the odd bleak year where I've just been flailing. So, yes, <laughs> I'm not going to let anybody. Plus... Mm. Uh, you know, for 35 years, people have said to me, no, that's a shit idea. Don't do it. <laughs> and I've had a good career. Yeah. And people have always liked the things that people told yeah. me not to do. I was going to say, at what point does your reputation just carry you? And then eventually people yeah. are like, it sounds bad, but it is you. So it's probably yeah. going to yeah. be really amazing. You know what? Things are starting to change. Yeah. There is more trust now. Good, good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, definitely. Good. Well, you deserve it. Well, thank you. <laughs> it should have been a lot earlier. <laughs> yeah, it really did take, I mean, honestly, right up until, say, being publicly shared. Well, beyond yeah, it, really. actually, I, this this podcast I made called The Butterfly Effect, which mm. is about the um, uh, what happened when tech utopians took over the porn industry. Mm. And I made a, The Butterfly Effect is about the ripples of that decision. And even, and then people were very hostile. You don't want to do any, you don't want to touch porn, don't do anything mm. that's got anything to do with, with the porn world. Wow. Um, and that was a, and that was a hit that went to like yeah. number one in the audiobook charts. So I think that was the final, like, okay, mm. we'll trust you. I'm, I'm on something. Yeah. Or, or other <laughs> yeah, people, yeah. like, you know, other people just, trusting that I know what I'm doing yeah do you get much um backlash from people with your work or uh less less than you'd think uh, there's, a, <laughs> uh, uh, there's an Australian a really brilliant Australian writer mm. called John Safran who's very he's like an Australian Louis Theroux or me and <laughs> um, whenever he comes to New York you know we have because I live in New York now we, we have lunch and mm. I saw him couple of months ago and he said uh, he said he said we don't get criticized much do we like you know me you louis we don't get criticized much and i'm like no like mm. why is that you know f- and he was talking specifically mm. about sort of depla- you know doing yeah, stories yeah. about nazis or whatever mm. he said you know everybody if, if someone else does stories about nazis they get really criticized but we don't and john's theory is that we've been grandfathered in Right. Okay. Yeah, like, um, um, and and in a way, we're like a useful weapon. So (laughs) somebody could say, "I hate," you know, that person's documentary about Nazis was so terrible. They, you know, but you know, they should be more like John Safran, or they should be more like Louis Theroux, you know, whatever. (laughs) So I think you know, we we luckily got this little Mm. bubble where we where we don't get quite the criticism that other people get. 
I would say maybe that's because the way that you approach it is slightly different. You know, it yeah. is more, it feels more empathetic and more curious, human, compassionate. Yeah, yeah. and curious. curious. It's exactly. not judgmental, it's curious. No, because you do get some people who, even if they try and mask it, you can tell the judgments there. Mm. Yeah, um, and I think that's a little bit distasteful sometimes. And yeah, and performative. Like, what's right. the point? Like, to be honest, look, some people listening to this may disagree with what I'm about to say, and you know, maybe I'm wrong what I'm about to say. But you know, when I'm doing well, a I won't do Nazis unless there's another reason, mm-hmm. like yeah. unless it's an amazing story that yeah. happens to take place in the world of white supremacists or whatever. Mm-hmm. I won't just do white supremacists for the sake of doing white mm-hmm. supremacists. Um, so that so that's important that it's always got to be a more interesting, nuanced, strange, unexpected story. Mm. But also, it's like we know that Nazis are bad. So why say mm. it? Like it, if you say it, it's just it's for me. It's bad art mm. to say the obvious. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's like another reason why. I, yeah. 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 Makes sense. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing, you could never be um, judged on doing the obvious. It doesn't feel like you've ever done the obvious, really. No, yeah. You know, my earliest, I remember I did Nazis, my first Nazis. I did Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all done a Nazi story. Oh, I did Nazis the other day, actually. What about you, Giles? (laughs) Well, my very first Nazi story was um, this politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. Basically, a, a... a grand wizard of the clan decided to make the clan more likable. Oh, okay. So he banned the robes, banned the hoods, banned the cross burnings, banned all the things that I think were presumably the most fun about being in the Christmas <laughs> clan. The costumes. Yeah, the costumes. The, the, pageant, the pageantry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, so that's why I did that story, because yeah. there was a comedy, there was like an unexpected right. comedy to it. <laughs> Yeah. Why? Why did he do that? Uh, he to just uh, gained fame. Like, yeah, like a commercial right. commercialization. Oh, yeah, PR stunt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't hate black people. We just love white people. He he mm. came after David Duke, who was the first Klansman to try and be more mainstream. And this guy was called Tom Robb, and he took David Duke's position as like head of a particular faction of the Klan. Mm. And so he sort of carried it on and took it further. Right, right. Um, yeah, but it really <gasps> didn't work. Nobody wanted a fun. Nobody wanted a nice <laughs> Klan. <Nice. laughs> I want to know where you stand with those yeah. kind of organisations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like we have. There's, you know, in the states now, there are lots of organisations that kind of circle around that particular kind of area. You know, you've got things like we saw it on. January the 6th and we with mm-hmm. like things like the Proud Boys and stuff like that. Yes. Um, There's an interesting, without going into too much detail, mm-hmm. when's this going out, by the way? This, by before 2024? It will probably, Possibly. I think it's going to be New Year's, is it New Year's Day or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, because I need to be a little circumspect about giving mm-hmm. away yeah. too much of plot, but um, actually, because season two of Things Fell Apart doesn't mm-hmm. come out till January the 9th. But one of the stories actually looks at, not the Proud Boys, but looks at um, sort of accusations of white supremacy and sort of digs into that a little bit Mm. um, with some other groups. Mm. So I'm I'm curious to see if I'll get into trouble for it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I feel like I've, you know, I work so hard Mm. 
that I sort of feel like I've got everything right by the time yeah. it goes out. Yeah. And I feel yeah. that way about this story too. But but yeah, I'm, I'm looking into that very thing. Mm. Yeah. Do you find, do you ever get a little fearful when you're going in deeper on those sort of things? A little. You're always more worried if you, mm. if you do something that's sort of slightly critical of the left. Mm. When I'm slightly critical yeah. of the right... I don't care. It feels, it feels easier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, Helen, this is a little unfair and it's a little broad, but I always remember Helen Lewis, the, the writer, saying, I think she wrote it, that um, when the right go after you, you know, it's horrible, but it tends to last maybe 48 hours. Mm. When the left go after you, mm. it can go on for years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you never give up. Yeah, they're yeah. like elephants. We they just don't forget. To, yeah, yeah. So hold a grudge. Yeah. I was going to say, when you release stuff, do you stay off social media or do you check it more? <laughs> um, I've got better. Mm. I mean, there's times I've just remembered, like how, before the psychopath test came out, I was, you know, having panic attacks. Oh, really? Like, I don't want to make myself seem like I'm super calm or anything, mm. you know. Um, don't worry, you're in good company with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Very anxious people. Very yeah. anxious people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've been publicly shamed too. Mm. I, I was having panic attacks, like genuine mm. sleepless nights and anxiety. And... Well, I mean, the topic of, of mm. that, and you were focusing on a lot, a lot of people who were hated, really, yeah. in the public. So it's always if you're positioning yourself as on their side, so to speak. Well, I, I don't know if my other readers felt this, but I, when I was reading that book, I was then going back and checking all my posts. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was thinking, what have I said in the past yeah. that's possible? Because obviously oh, you're seeing what can happen. It's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Well, it's like just, Justine Sacco, is it? Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. The tweet that the went wrong. Woman. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think we can all empathise a little bit with... You know, when you tweeted something or done something, yeah. totally, yeah, exactly. Which it's wasn't so meant to be offensive, but no, she was trying to be. Ironic, yeah, for it? people who, who don't know the, the tweet, this was mm. the first great public shaming, the first, like mm. the ground zero. She was flying to Cape Town and she tweeted, thinking she was doing like a South Park, making fun of her own privilege. Mm. It was going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Mm. And yeah, she became, by the time she landed, um, well, she turned on her phone after she landed and the first text kind of said it all. It was from somebody she hadn't spoken to since high school. And the text said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you right now. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Uh, Everyone's but, worst nightmare, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, that fear. Mm. Um, I, I, I do think the thing I'm most proud of, so you've been publicly shamed, is, you know, I had those fears too. Like, is there anything mm. in my past? Is there anything that I could be got for? You know, is there, you know, there's that Jimmy Carr line about how, you know, he said something along the lines of, you know, the joke that will destroy my career is already out there somewhere. Mm. Yeah. And that yeah. fear, that real palpable terror. Oh, it's so true, actually. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I was trying to make people feel when they read So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Like, yeah. I, I, I wanted it to be like a visceral mm. experience, like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, the terror. It felt yeah. like that, to and, be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah. I was going to call it the terror at one point. Oh, and, really? And fact, yeah, in fact, one of the chapters is called the terror. Oh, do you know what, though? I, f- yeah. I, f- I feel so bad for people that are teenagers living in this online world now. Because when I think about what I was like as a teenager mm. I would have been cancelled like that you know just saying stupid stuff for a yeah. laugh like that's what teenagers do isn't it totally without using their brains but oh just to have everything out there on a public forum for people to well, read well, and... I think we forget it's a public forum yeah 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 exactly you do forget and you know I got a lot of criticism for 
you know, defending Justine Sacco. Really? And, but, you know, this is what I said to me. You know, somebody said to me, you know, when you send a tweet, it's like standing in Times Square with a megaphone. And I was like, no, it's not. Mm. And especially not in 2013. Like, nothing like that had ever happened before. There was yeah. no logical reason why Justine Sacco would have thought that would happen while mm. she was asleep on a plane. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if it had been a genuinely racist tweet, then that's one thing. Yeah, but and and I wouldn't have written about her if it had no. been a genuinely racist yeah, tweet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, and I mean, then there's loads of other really interesting stories of other people as well in in the book, mm. which just fill me with terror. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking oh, well, I'm glad. I, I I very consciously wanted <laughs> yeah. to fill people yeah. with terror yeah. Yeah. because I thought, you know, on on the internet we forget there's consequences, mm. and so I really, you know, my primary goal right in that book was to make people feel what it feels like to be to be just in yeah, or yeah. to be those people well yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who's sort of in the public eye and they were saying you know the bigger our you know our reputation grows the t- more terrified we are of having some huge public shaming mm. to the point where they're almost like maybe we need to like plan it and and then we'll have control over the fire kind right. of thing. Like we'll fake it, you know, we'll do something crazy. And we were talking about, and I think you mentioned this in the book, is when you do stuff all the time, like Trump, for example, terrible things all the time to the point mm. where you Google, it's just so much stuff that you can't even really pinpoint one or two things. Whereas if you've got this angelic, you know, yes. really great reputation, like you were saying earlier, people are either really good or really bad. Yeah, that's where you're more likely it's to... It's more dangerous. Totally. Then, yeah. yeah, our shameworthiness. I always forget whether this is my quote or whether I was quoting somebody else in the book, but the line was that our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. So if you present yourself to the world... So Joan Allaire, for instance, in my book, was a pop science writer in the kind of Malcolm Gladwell mould. And he, um, you know, committed some... I mean, you know, now you could say pretty minor infractions, sort Mm. of added some some words to a Bob Dylan quote. I mean, stupid Mm. stuff, but not not the level of misinformation that's swept the world since. Well, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the reason why he suffered, you know, so so much for it was, you know, because he presented himself as this, you know, sort of professorial, pop science, intellectual. Mm. And so he had a much bigger height to fall from. Mm. If you present the truth of yourself to somebody, the messy truth, yeah, yeah. Less, you're less likely to be ruined well it's like going on a first date with someone isn't it you, you know if you turn up as yourself and you look like shit and you're just like your yeah. authentic self it's fine if you present yourself as this amazing person and then the minute you start being your actual authentic yeah. self yeah. it's like this isn't gonna work right yes <laughs> yeah it's so true it's so interesting isn't it you, we right. touched on it a bit earlier with like tech companies and stuff but i guess like things like the justin sacco Mm. Uh, moments now they're kind of rubbing their hands together in these moments aren't they oh like, god yeah you know <laughs> justine Sacker was googled 40 times a month that month december 2013 she was googled 1 million 220 thousand wow. times and it was december 23rd she was googled that many times in the last eight days wow. of that month uh yeah which means that google I actually got some internet economists to mm. figure out how much money google made mm. and it was a pretty wide spectrum mm. but the figure that they came up with was 
um, somewhere, you know, the night of the Justine Sacco incident, Google made somewhere between $120,000 and $468,000 on, on the back of her shaming. Whereas those of us doing the actual shaming mm. got nothing. We were like yeah. unpaid shaming interns for Google. Well, you get the you get the prize of thinking that you're doing the right thing in the moment, which I know you mm. speak about as well. When you, in the past, well, we're very righteous, aren't we? In the yeah, universe. yeah, we've yeah. all probably all done it. Like our shit doesn't stink. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, specifically since reading your book as well. I'm very careful now to jump on those bandwagons because I think, do I know all the information? Is it going to come out later that it's all like a misunderstanding? And then there's tweets out there of me like, yeah, like with my pitchfork. Right. <laughs> so scary. Well, yeah. I mean, one positive thing I'd say is that there's, you know, there's been so much shaming for mm. the last 10 years. People are, you know, maybe starting to get a little bit sick of it. And, mm. and a big public shaming maybe doesn't go as far now as just unless it's something that's justified I mean obviously I'm talking about you know minor infractions like mm. Justin Sacker's tweet I'm not talking about major infractions like Russell Brand's mm. you know I'm talking about but so but in smaller situations like Justin Sacco I don't think I, I don't think things will go as far now as as 10 years ago mm. um, Would it, could you say also like obviously we we haven't really touched on cancel culture or the word cancel culture is like mm. too broad almost for mm. the things that it kind of you know glosses over but I was just thinking it's almost like some individuals want to be cancelled like it's almost like a coat of arms yeah and, you can, and then you can like you say you can profitize from it in some way or you know you can get your you know get on some slightly more right-wing news channels in yeah. this country if you, if you like. yeah. yeah right and all of that is comparatively new yeah. and it's kind of our fault you know yeah. we're i equate it to like hospital superbugs like in, in, <laughs> and like you know we shame and shame and shame so much that the that the bugs turn into superbugs they're like impervious yeah. to, yeah. Impervious yeah. to treatment yeah. Yeah. yeah if i use too much antibiotics now <laughs> <laughs> right oh, so, so true. yeah so you're right so this whole new thing of of you know the the upside down world where mm -hmm. you can now go i mean that's you know it's comparatively new and and um and it's our fault. It wouldn't have happened if if we'd been more compassionate mm. and you know curious instead of judgmental and forgiving and patient and yeah. you know we create you know they're the monsters that we created mm. to an extent. I'm not mm. you know to an extent. I mean you, you know there's certain to an extent not entirely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Allegedly, <laughs> John. I know this might go out before season two is out mm -hmm. but is are there any little sneak peek tasters you can give uh -huh. us of what's to come in season two what can we expect well i've already given like a couple um of tiny little things but it's eight stories have you got a favorite um i i think they're all good this time around there was one or two <laughs> in season one that i liked a little bit less okay. than the others but I think they're all good. I'm really proud of the work that we've done. It we've, we've, Me and Sarah Sheppey and my producer, we've worked really hard. Um, episodes one and two ha are like origin stories that mm -hmm. are very similar to the ones in season one. Mm -hmm. um, I'll okay, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll just tell you like one line from each of the, because I'm not going to oh, tell you where yeah. they go. Okay. But episode one starts in Miami mm. in the 80s with the mysterious deaths of 32 women. Oh. 
And, you know, one thing I really love about the show is that it takes ages, you know, uh, for you to figure out how is that relevant to today. Mm. Um, oh, I was going to say, should we try and guess what they are? <laughs> no, no chance. No, you don't have to guess. <laughs> yeah. um, and episode two starts with a chance encounter at a yacht club between a bartender and a customer. And again, it takes ages. I mean, with both of those stories, mm. you're probably 20 minutes in of a half an hour show before you get even an inkling of, of how, it, how it's relevant to today. Wow. And that's that's the thing I love most about Things Fell Apart, that the same thing happened with the abortion one. Like, mm. you know, you're with this kid who's trying to become a Hollywood director. And um, you know, you're probably more than halfway through the show before you realise, oh, my God, this is about mm. the genesis of the anti-abortion movement. Yeah. I was going to say, is it, is it a bit like Memento? You're sort of working backwards a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, and I just love, I think, you know, the BBC... Um, allow me that kind of indulgence to to um you know tell a story in mm. that kind of slow way without signposting it too much like I'll signpost a bit um but I don't think it's necessary to signpost massively no uh I, I trust you know I trust that people will go with it that's you know that's something I really do love about Radio 4 and the BBC. I've been listening to it in. I can't. I used to always listen to the news to fall asleep, but since Israel and Gaza, I can't no. anymore. How can you sleep? So I've switched to Melvin Bragg's In Our Time. Oh, which <laughs> that's is a great least, show. Yeah, it's the least stressful <laughs> show. So I'm now learning everything about Tutankhamun and yeah. stuff. And, and, um, uh, and yeah, again, yeah. it's like this is what's so wonderful about the BBC that you can yeah. put something like that out and there's no impetus to make it. Um, you know, current or mm. you know, trust. There's a lot of trust. Yeah, ready for have with their with their listeners. Mm. It's yeah. lovely to have that. I should imagine as a creative, just have that. Yeah, I've really enjoyed working with the BBC on both season one and season two of Things Fell Apart. They're smart people. They give very few notes. I mean, although that's partly because I work so hard, mm. and by the time they hear it, yeah, there aren't there isn't much call for notes. Yeah. So, I mean, out of interest, how long does it take you to do like one episode, for example, with regards to like re- all the research and the uh, interviews and things? I mean, say, rough, rough yeah, I'd say roughly each episode, uh, they're 30 minutes long. Mm. I reckon each episode takes just over a month. Right. Um, I mean, with books, it, it can be like two years. I mean, yeah. it's like, uh, them was five years, but you, you, you know. But this is this is a week's work, I'd say that I that I take a month over. So I'd, I'd probably take like four times longer than you know, just thinking about every split second. Of, yeah. Mm. Um, but actually, more than a month, I'd say probably six weeks per episode. Mm. Mm. Are you recording in the UK? No, I, I record it all. Uh, this is the first time I've ever done a show remotely. Mm. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do it, because, you know, you can be on too many planes in your life. Yeah. It can oh, break yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so I do the whole thing for my for my laundry room at my in my house in upstate oh, New York. Lovely. In I the just, Cat- Catskills? Yeah, <laughs> well, just across the river from the Catskills. Oh, so you lovely. can see the Catskills from our town. Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> I put, um, uh, I just put a blanket over the washing machine so there isn't too much of an echo. <laughs> and I just record the whole thing in the laundry room. Amazing. That's nice. You can have a cup of tea or whatever whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love it. I love working love from it. home. 
Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. It's yeah. been such a wonderful. Honestly. We could talk for you for hours, so, yeah. but I know your time is precious. Ooh, so thank you man. so much for coming and uh, talking to us. Yeah, oh, well, it's my you. pleasure. I look forward to coming out and I hope people enjoy it. And it was very nice to talk to you both. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.